and welcome to the Presto Classical Podcast. After foreign excursions on our previous podcasts, today's show returns to Blighty in time for the holiday season to explore the glories and wonders of England's mighty choral tradition. It's going to be a journey that will take us from music written from a boarding school in the 15th century to one of today's most talented English musicians, Anna Lapwood. I also haven't had to venture far afield to find my guest. In fact, no further than the end of my desk here at Presto Towers. David Smith, hopefully familiar to many of you as a member of Presto's editorial team, is also a lay clerk at St Philip's Cathedral in Birmingham, a member of the vocal group Ex Cathedra, and a journalist for Early Music America. When he's not preoccupied with these fine endeavours, his day job is heading the digital catalogue here at Presto Music. Welcome to the show, David Smith. Hello, Paul. Before we begin our chronographic choral adventure, David, could you give us a brief introduction to where your interest in English choral music began and what your duties as a lay clerk involve? So I've been doing this kind of music since I was about seven, I think. I joined the front row of trebles in the church choir at the church where I I used to live in Presbury on the outskirts of Cheltenham. I've been doing it pretty much ever since. So um, I went off to university, there was a, a chapel choir there, which was the same sort of thing. Uh, actually, quite a small choir, which was quite nice um, compared to some larger ones. And then uh, since moving up to these parts uh, to work at Presto, I sang briefly at Warwick, which is a sort of cathedral standard choir, despite not being actually a cathedral. And then I've been at St. Philip's Cathedral Birmingham uh, since 2016, I think, as a lay clerk. Um, and lay clerk is... Um, Briefly, just the word for the adult alto tenor and bass members of a choir of that kind. There's all kinds of slightly whimsical names for this. Uh, they are vicars choral in some places, despite not being vicars as we understand the term. Lay clerks, we're not really clerks either. It's just that's the word that's come into use. Um, and the duties are just to sing at whatever services uh, are on the the sort of the normal routine of of the church or the cathedral. Depending where you are, that can be an awful lot or not so many. At Birmingham, it tends to be four, two in the week and two on a Sunday. I'm aware of people, uh, a former colleague of mine sings at Yorkminster where there are eight, which is three on a Sunday and then one every day and one day off. So it can be very, very full on or it can be a little bit less. Well, we begin our journey just down the road from Windsor Castle. David, Eton College is famously a breeding ground for many a British statesman, but could it also be seen as the embryo for the English choral tradition? Could you introduce the Eton Choir Book and how it helped develop a uniquely English approach to choral singing, presumably derived from the world of Gregorian chant? Yeah, so you're absolutely right to uh, draw that connection with plain chant. A lot of music of kind of this period, we're talking pre-Reformation, so this is still Catholic England, um, has a sort of kernel of, it's kernel with a K, <laughs> uh, a kernel of plain song. So if you think of a normal plain song sort of melody, if you stretch that out till it's unrecognisably slow, sort of in, in semi-breeze almost, rather than in crutches or in quavers, and you then use that as one line in a piece of music, it's called the cantus firmus, and then you sort of construct other parts around it. Uh, and this is very, very common, um, not just in England, but sort of, I think, across the whole Catholic world as it was then. And the, the Eton Choir book is not so much an embryo as it is, I think, a kind of time capsule. Because obviously when the Reformation came along and we had you know successive waves of, of Puritan iconoclasm, um, not just in music but elsewhere, you think of all these churches where uh, it's whitewashed and then, you know, it's it's renovated... You know, it's sort of somebody discovered in 2006 that there's been an amazing fresco or something underneath. Statues, I think, removed. Some organs, you know, taken out and smashed up. And one of the other things that was a casualty of this was this sort of very Catholic tradition of music because it's so far removed from what you think of as Tudor music. There is sort of, if you think of the well-known little anthem by Purcell, part of his funeral music for Queen Mary... Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. It's very, very clear. The, the opening is literally, Thou knowest, Lord. You can hear exactly what's going on. But in this earlier style, that couldn't be further from the truth. You have monumental textures and phrases that go on and on and on, just on one syllable sometimes. You, you think it might be an entire page of the the Ah of Alleluia or the Sa of Sanctus, something like that. I remember noticing this in Taverner's Missa Gloria, uh, Gloria Tibi Trinitas, which is a 
enormous piece of 45 minutes long if you do the whole thing. And it's just, you get the sense that he wasn't really setting the words in any meaningful sense. He was sort of responding to them and then just spinning something, almost absolute music, just spinning something magnificent out of these words, leaving the words themselves far behind. Because, of course, at this point, the music wasn't for the edification, much less the entertainment of the congregation. They didn't need to know what was going on. That's not really what church was about then. It was quite literally, you know, soli dei gloria, just for the glory of God. But then, you know, with the change in sensibilities and the change in theology, I guess, with the Reformation, a lot of that stuff was just destroyed and lost. And so the Eton Choir book is, I think, the best known and possibly also the first discovered, not a hum- or rediscovered, not 100% sure about that, of sort of the remaining sources of this stuff. I think it was just in the library at Eton and overlooked by everybody for, for some time. There are others. Uh, there's one at my old college, Peterhouse, I think, in Cambridge, Peterhouse Park Books. There's one up in Durham. But this is the most complete. And I say complete in the sense that, you know, uh, a paleontologist would recognise the term. You don't you don't have a complete skeleton of a dinosaur. You have one that is just less incomplete. But it has composers that we don't really hear of these days. So there's there's Fairfax, there's Cornish, there's uh, Wilkinson with a Y, uh, Mundy as well. And, and it's just sort of, I think we're so lucky that any of these escaped, I think literally escaped the flames. Because otherwise this whole chapter of uh, sort of the church's musical history in England would have been lost forever. Well, we haven't got time to play the whole inquiry, but we do have time for an excerpt. This is John Nesbitt's Magnificat, performed by The Sixteen and Harry Christophers. The Reformation brought religious conflict to Europe, although, as David mentioned, the Eton Choir Book was fortunately spared Henry VIII's dissolutions of the monasteries. And in England, the conflict was played out both in the realm of politics and in music, with Thomas Tallis and William Byrd being so dominant, Queen Elizabeth gave them a joint monopoly on polyphonic music. Especially remarkable given the fact that both Tallis and Byrd were themselves Catholics. How does Tallis's most famous work, his 40-part motet, Spem in Allium, managed to cross the Protestant-Catholic divide, and would it be fair to call it, alongside Shakespeare of course, England's greatest contribution to the Renaissance? I think it's certainly a contribution, and it's also a culmination, I think, of a lot of of sort of uh, trends and desires, not just in music but elsewhere. The, the sort of factoid or popular myth surrounding Spermanalium, which I don't know is true... Nobody's quite sure, and it's very difficult to be sure, but it seems quite reasonable, so I'm just going to run with it, is that um, Henry VIII built this magnificent palace, uh, Nonsuch Palace, which was in part an attempt to sort of show the continent that England was every bit as cultured and you know could produce something every bit as magnificent as anything they had the other side of the channel. It's not there anymore. I think it was torn down to pay off the debts of the mistress of some Georgian monarch. Can't quite remember, but it's, it's something like that. But while it was standing, um, it had these very distinctive octagonal towers. And it's thought, because these had uh, two floors of galleries inside them, uh, it's thought that Talis's Speminalia may have been composed with those in mind as a venue, and possibly even first performed there, because the 40 parts are divided into eight choirs of five which obviously lets you do all sorts of nice things with sort of spatial arrangement, and it, it gives a very impressive experience like that. The sort of relationship that between the Protestant and Catholic music is quite an interesting one. I think Talis and Bird both had to sort of tack with the prevailing political winds, as, you know, there's this great tug of war between Protestant and Catholic over this whole period. And they both showed that they could kind of turn their hands equally well to either. There are certainly some works, particularly by Bird, that are very much in the vein of 
sympathising with the Catholics who had, as it were, been trapped the wrong side of the border when the wall went up. There are there's this sense running through some of it of kind of how should we sing the Lord's song in a strange land kind of thing, being abandoned and calling on God to deliver them and you know bring them back into the fold. And so there are things sort of playing on the various biblical things where you know Jerusalem has been laid waste and destroyed and it's sort of lamenting that and taking that as as an inspiration. So there's um, a thing by Bird which is exactly that. It's sort of you know, how does the city sit solitary? Everything is abandoned and in ruins and that kind of thing. Uh, and yet also there are things that are much, much more Protestant in their musical sensibilities. Um, there's Talis's If You Love Me, which is a very nice little, very short anthem. And it's like that Purcell one I mentioned before, although obviously earlier. It starts with very simple block chords. Language is in English, which is itself significant. Yeah, so it was it was clearly possible for composers to to do both and they didn't seem to have many any kind of compunctions about doing so speminalium is sort of in the middle it's not consciously trying to bridge the divide because i don't think that's a thing one would really have done in a kind of can't we all just get along kind of way but it's definitely not partisan one way or the other text is in latin which is toward the uh, catholic side of things but it isn't one of these we have been cut off from the church, when will we be delivered, kind of things. The text is more just, what is it, I have never hoped in any but thee, O Lord, um, you know, respect my humility. Uh, there's nothing quite so forlorn about it, and it doesn't have that sense of, of total desolation that you get in some of the other Catholic music. So I think it is, yeah, kind of, kind of in the middle um, in terms of what it's trying to articulate. Okay, well, while we can't recreate the acoustics of its original venue, we hope that wherever you listen to this performance of Talis' Speminalium, performed by the Aura Singers and Susie Digby, you do enjoy it. Despite their monopoly, Talis and Bird weren't the only choral composers in England at this time. Can you introduce Orlando Gibbons and his CC, the word is incarnate? Yes, so this is, I think, a little bit later, maybe a, a generation or so, but it's the same sort of time period. This is an example of something called a verse anthem, which is, it's almost like a concerto in that it has a soloist and a tutti, which isn't that common in sacred music, really. It's, it's sometimes literally verses, if it's setting verses in the Bible, but you have a, a solo section or a couple of soloists singing some of the texts and then the choir uh, will come in and sort of respond or sing the next bit, which is obviously quite useful in purely pragmatic terms, because if the soloists are doing quite a lot of the heavy lifting, then that's so much less music for the rest of the choir to have to learn. This particular one I've chosen because it's a, a fascinating example of the text chosen. Most anthems, verse anthems and just anthems generally, are for a time or a season in the church year, you know. Hooray, it's Christmas, Christ is born. Hooray, it's Easter, Christ is risen. This is all of the above. See, see, the word that incarnate is God coming into the world. It then does a whistle-stop tour through the entire story of Jesus' life, right up to the crucifixion and the resurrection, and I think also uh, the ascension afterwards. And so you can kind of use it at any point in the church year when you fancy doing it, which is great because... It's just such a great piece of music, but I think it's quite unusual in having that this-is-your-life sort of approach. Well, let's have an excerpt of a certain part of uh, Christ's life performed by the Steely Antico and Fretwork.
it fair to say, David, that due to the Protestant-Catholic divide, the English choral tradition has now inherited the best of both worlds, the glorious large-scale works by Talis that has helped create the Anglican tradition, and also the more small-scale groups like the Jesualdo Six, that are the result of some of Bird's perhaps more intimate music. I think it would, and the, the, the best sort of example of that is the fact that we're able to just use Protestant and Catholic music without anybody really batting an eyelid. I think this is also true, very much true in the Catholic Church. There are very few places left that will, you know, turn their noses up at Bach because he was a Lutheran. But it's always been true, and I think it's just inherent to the way the Church of England took shape. This kind of big tent, don't look too closely, papering over the cracks the, kind of the, compromise. The theological fudge, shall we say. Yes, yes. And it's, um, but you will, you will quite often have, you know, a, a service where there's a mass setting by Palestrina or Victoria certainly a voluntary is likely to be something by Bach. Hymns will come from all over the uh, ecumenical shop and anthems as well. And it's it's never really been seen as any kind of negative. So we really do have the best of both worlds. And, you know, as you say, also the sheer size and the variety in sizes of choirs is something that I think we can attribute that also to this sort of mixed heritage because that more intimate group, I think probably has its earliest roots in Catholic music making in Haydn, but also music making in the household generally, where obviously you have, you know, parents and a couple of kids maybe, and that's it. So that's always, there's always been music written for those kinds of forces, and it's still with us now alongside the larger stuff. And as an example of the smaller scale music, here is Lullaby My Sweet Little Baby by William Bird, performed by the Jesualdo Six. The early English Baroque was dominated by a singular genius, Henry Purcell, who held the position of both organist at Westminster Abbey and the composer at the Chapel Royal. What from his extraordinary output have you selected, and how did he build on the tradition he inherited from Talis and others, while at the same time develop a unique musical style? Well, the piece I've picked is actually not the best representation of the things that, uh, that Purcell the, the most obvious innovations in his style. Um, I think he drew a lot on French music and that sort of slightly courtly, dancey feel. It's very much evident in things like Dido and Aeneas, some of the dances in that. Less so, I think, in his sacred music, but this particular piece, which is Hear My Prayer, O Lord, is not courtly or dance-like at all. It's very subdued and it's for you know, the sort of darker times of the church year, you know, Lent and, and periods like that when the sort of th thoughts turn to slightly more reflective uh, side of things. But yeah, I mean, he was just almost sort of unique and standing by himself for a very long time. And there isn't really much of a school around him, uh, a Purcell school, if you will. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, you do get this sense that he was uniquely able, I think, to draw all kinds of things together, French, Italian, into a style that just you instantly know it's Purcell when you hear it, as I think we're about to. Well, this is Purcell's Hear My Prayer, O Lord, performed by the choir of St. Thomas's Church, Fifth Avenue, New York, the Concert Royal, conducted by John Scott.
The late 17th century in which Purcell lived was a period of rapid colonial expansion, and this recording is from the colonies, albeit the one that got away. To what extent are choral traditions in places such as America, Australia, and even Africa influenced by the English Anglican tradition? In the simplest possible terms, it is basically that wherever the flag was planted, the church soon followed. You know, this was a central part of what imperialism was about, whatever you may think about that one way or the other. Um, and so, yeah, to the, to this day, there are Anglican-derived traditions right across the world. So there's Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the Episcopal Church in the US approaches services in much the same kind of way. And even in places that might not seem so obvious. So there are cathedral choirs maintaining this kind of tradition in India. There's one in Mumbai Cathedral. Uh, there's one in Uganda, in Namirembe Cathedral, which I hope I've pronounced correctly, where I discovered this choir completely by chance uh, a few weeks ago, months ago maybe, on YouTube. And the fascinating thing is that they are singing the same kind of repertoire, psalms in the Anglican sort of a way of singing psalms, which we'll come on to a bit later, but in their own language, not in English. The language, I think, is called Luganda. Um, and also, like, some some uh, anthems and motets that I recognise, I know exactly what it is, but it's been translated into their native language. And obviously, I think this is absolutely in line with what the Church of England is about, and more generally, you know, Protestantism and the use of the local language rather than the language of you know, some distant power thousands of miles away. There's even still a choir in this tradition in Hong Kong. I think it's St. John's Cathedral. The chap I used to sing with at Birmingham was a student who'd come over from Hong Kong and he'd sung in that kind of style, sang with us for a couple of years and has now gone back there. So it's, yes, it's very much alive anywhere that at any point has been even slightly British. There will probably be somebody doing this kind of music but adopted and adapted to the local uh, culture themselves. Yeah, very much so. And I think it's interesting that a lot of places that have decisively rejected most of the heritage of empire, um, you know, becoming the, independent... Yeah, the political sort of aspect of empire. Yes, indeed. Um, they've, in some cases, have held on to this, which I think is interesting because, you know, they could perfectly well have thrown this stuff out at the same time. And, you know, perhaps they would have had every reason to. But in many cases, they didn't. And I think that says something about the value of it that goes beyond just the white man's burden, if you will. When Purcell died of pneumonia after his wife refused to let him in after coming back late from a night on the tiles, aged just 36, English music was left bereft of native talent. And England became heavily reliant on imports, both politically and musically. The anthem Zadok the Priest, initially composed by the Saxon Handel for the coronation of the Hanoverian George II in 1727, and wisely used ever since, is a fine example. Here's an excerpt performed by Gabrielli, conducted by Paul McCreish. David, have you got some anecdotes from the time after Handel's death in 1759 when England was perhaps accurately described as das Land ohne Musik, the land without music? And would it be fair to say that it was the English choral tradition which helped keep English composition alive during this time when instrumental composition by English composers seemed to be in the doldrums? Well, <laughs> the Land ohne Musik is a very interesting sort of uh, theory and I think you know, there's been an enormous amount of ink spilled over it. I think it's sort of a manifestation of that great man theory of history, which is all about, you know, kings, queens, emperors, empresses. And it's certainly true that from Purcell until up about, up until about maybe Elgar, there wasn't really an English superstar composer, a big name that everybody had heard of. And I feel like people 
interpret that to mean that there wasn't really anything going on. But clearly there was, because if there hadn't been an interest in music and an interest in what was new and what was exciting in the arts, we wouldn't have bothered importing all these uh, foreigners in the first place. So it's I, th- I feel it's not quite a fair description. But it is, I think, true that th- there was a sort of fashion-following element to it, as well as just art for art's sake. I think with England being, you know, politically and economically and I suppose militarily quite a rising power at this point, the people who were doing well out of that would want to show that they were up in the latest fashions. And if that, if that meant continental fashions, then, you know, so be it. That's where the exciting things were happening. So, yeah, you have this delicious irony that one of the iconically British and I think English, arguably, pieces, Zadok the Priest, uh, was written by a German immigrant. For another German immigrant. <laughs> well, indeed, yes. He was by no means the first. I think also the other one that springs to mind is a chap called Thomas Arne, who was writing about this time, wrote this uh, opera, or I think it might be a semi-opera, called Alfred, which is sort of a, a patriotic thing about Alfred defeating uh, foreign invaders and you might be thinking well who's Alfred why do I care well you care because the closing number the absolute showstopper of Alfred is a little ditty you might know called Rural Britannia so from the period Ona Musique we have two you know totally sort of immortal and iconic pieces one of them written by a composer often seen as a bit of a one-hit wonder and the other by by a German who'd been brought in to supplement our own sort of lack. In terms of the choral tradition keeping things afloat, I don't know how much that's true. I mean, there were certainly, in the instrumental world, there were people like John Field, who I think it's generally thought kind of invented the nocturne, but didn't really do enough with it to become known as such. And then, you know, people like Chopin uh, sort of took on and perfected took it. on the baton. There were plenty of composers whose whose church music is still performed uh, to this day. Uh, the likes of William Boyce, Thomas Atwood, Samuel Sebastian Wesley. So it certainly was, things still were, you know, ticking over. But those three names, I'm very much aware, will not be as widely known to people who don't have at least a finger in this sort of quite specific musical ecosystem. Nobody has heard of these people who has heard of just handle. Do you have a specific piece by uh, any of these composers that you would recommend to, that would be worth checking out? I mean, honestly, it is known for Royal Britannia, but actually the whole of Alfred is really quite good music from start to finish. It's It becomes a little campy in places, but, you know, that's... Half the course. <laughs> there's plenty of other music that is at least as campy. And it's, it's a really good, you know, consistently tuneful, really enjoyable piece. Um, the overture in itself is, is just magnificent. There is a recording of it available. I think the only one still around is on Deutsche Harmonia Mundi, which just, you know, we're just piling up the layers of iron here. <laughs> um, but it's a magnificent piece. And um, yeah, I really would encourage people to check it out. Well, the late Victorian period saw the British Empire dominate the world through the industrial output of its dark satanic mills. But in England itself, there was something of a religious reawakening through the Anglican revival, which in turn helped revive the fortunes of English composition. The music of Charles Villiers Stamford and the later Herbert Howells aren't particularly well known to the average British concertgoer, but are beloved by singers and devotees of English choral music, especially Stamford's Mag and Nunc, the Magnificat and Nunc Dimittis in B-flat. What role does the Mag and Nunc have within the Anglican service, and why is Stanford's setting so revered? Okay, so sort of slight tangent here for a, a history lesson and sort of um, Bible study. Um, the Magnificat and Nunc Dimittis are two prayers that are incorporated into the structure of Evensong, which is the evening service laid out in the Book of Common Prayer, which I think was originally intended to be like Vespers, but not Catholic. So it's this sort of reflective, looking back on the day, that kind of service. The Magnificat is the song or prayer that Mary sings or says just before the Christmas story, when the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, be not afraid, you are going to be the mother of God. And she essentially says, great, fine, bring it on. (laughs) And you have this sort of great prayer of sort of accepting the burden and sort of recognising that it's going to be this sort of she'll go down in history, I suppose. Um, all generations will call me blessed, that kind of thing. The Nunc Dimittis is also from the Christmas story, so this is just after the birth of Jesus now. 
Mary and Joseph take him to the temple to have various, you know, ritual and blessing things done with the newborn baby. And there is this elderly priest there called Simeon who has previously been sceptical that he will ever see the Messiah, doesn't think he's ever going to come. And an angel, I'm not sure if it's the same angel, um, says, ha, you of little faith, you will not die until you have seen the Messiah with your own eyes. So he's, you know, he's very old at this point. And they, they hand the baby Jesus to him to be blessed or whatever you do. And he looks at him and he says, ah, this is the one I've been waiting for. And so he sings, or again says this prayer, Lord, now you are letting your servant go in peace, for my eyes have seen the Messiah. Sort of say, saying goodbye to the world and sort of grateful that he can finally sort of die, I guess. So these are both woven into the fabric of Evensong. You get them at pretty much every service, and they come as a pair. So you get, that's where you get Mag and Nunk, um, like Cav and Pag. It's very rare to get one without the other. And what that means is that composers who've written settings of these texts tend to do them as a pair. So they'll often be in the same key. Uh, they'll often share musical material. In particular, quite often, there's a coda at the end of each prayer, which is the same words, which is glory be to the Father and to the Son and so on. There are several Mag and Nunk settings where that end section is literally the same music. It's only you know, even printed once in the score and you have to turn back again to find it when you're doing it the second time. So this is where we get the, the the sort of shorthand way of referring to these things. It's just composer in key. So you've got Stanford in B flat, Stanford in C, Stanford in A, uh, Dyson in D, and so on. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a very uniquely Anglican thing because they're so sort of inextricably entwined with the way Eden Song was put together. Well, let's have an excerpt from the Magnificat in B flat performed by Robert Quinney on organ, the Westminster Abbey Choir conducted by James O'Donnell. So the fascinating thing about Stanford in particular, I mean, as you say, things were at a bit of a low ebb before he came along. There is this anecdote about an anthem by Samuel Sebastian Wesley, who I mentioned a moment ago, called Blessed Be the God and Father, which is very, very good piece, very quite substantial piece. But it, there's this little line on the bottom of the score that's printed, you know, to this day in the editions we use now, where it says that at the first performance on Easter Day, only a very limited choir was available only trebles and one bass who was the dean's butler and you know the piece works with those forces but it's intended to be sung obviously by the whole choir and if you think about that easter day that's one of the most arguably the most significant maybe the second most significant festival in the church year and if on easter day you can't muster even you know a token alto and a token tenor that says something dreadful about the standard that things had fallen to it wouldn't be fair to give Stanford all the credit for, you know, sort of waving a magic wand and making everything okay again. There had been quite a lot of groundwork laid before him. Uh, a chap called Frederick Oosley and the much better known John Stainer had been doing quite a lot of work in improving standards and bringing things back up. And then Stanford very, very much built on that with, with anthems that were much more ambitious, I think, than what had gone before. The other thing that's interesting about him is he was very influenced by the German school of composition, particularly Brahms. He was a Big, big fan of Brahms. And you can hear it in some of his church music. He brings into church music structures that had previously been more associated with orchestral and instrumental music. Yeah, so form and structure and things like that. And then, obviously, right towards the end of his life, uh, that was completely upended because the war broke out, the First World War. And Stanford, I think, was not just angry, but I think he felt very betrayed because he'd idolised this country. And then it had turned out not to be what he thought it was. I think he'd been looking too much at Brahms and maybe not enough at the Prussian military. But, um, and so there is this anthem he writes in 1914 as a direct response to the outbreak of the war, which is 
furious. Um, it's, for lo, I raise up that bitter and hasty nation which march through the breadth of the earth to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. And the setting of it is just, it starts with sort of almost billowing waves in the organ. And it's just, ah! Oh! Um, and you can, you can tell he is just so angry at, at how things have turned out. But obviously, musically, the Germanness is still there in his music and can't be sort of purged quite that easily. Uh, but on a personal level, yeah, he was he was suddenly just, I think, shocked and betrayed that, that Germany would do this. It's perhaps similar to the influence of the English Anglican tradition on the colonies. They take the cultural aspects but reject the political aspects. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that would, that would be a, a whole other discussion, but I think that there's probably quite a lot of truth in that. Yeah. Herbert Howells made a massive contribution to English choral music, both in large-scale works such as his Requiem and Hymnus Paradisi, and in smaller-scale works such as the psalm chant you've selected. What is special about the way, way Howells sets the text to music in this piece? Uh, so this was a really difficult choice because there is so much absolutely glorious Howells. Some of his, again, Mag and Nunk settings and some of his anthems are just magnificent and they really do elevate this music that sometimes, with the best will in the world, can be a little bit workmanlike. There are some settings that you just kind of fill the gap. But Howells is just incredible and just, just such a work of art. But I thought I ought to restrain myself from those and instead give a little example of the psalm chant. So this is it's by no means unique to Howells. It's just that his setting is a particularly nice one. So this is a, a way of singing psalms which... I think must have evolved out of plain song and certainly has still one key element from plain song, which is the total lack of any prescribed rhythm. The rhythm is prescribed entirely by the words. If you think of the uh, the Allegri Miserere with the little in betweeny bits of plain song, it's just what however many syllables there are, that's what you do. There aren't minims and crotchets per se. And so this is also the case in this Anglican style of singing, except it's now not one line, it's four. It's it's block chords, everybody moving together, and again, you know, one one syllable at a time going through clearly so you can hear what's being sung. It's it's a very efficient way of getting through a lot of text, because some of these psalms, even if you break them down into chunks, like Psalm 119, which is an absolute monster and goes on forever, even the chunks are quite long, and if you set them in the way that people set anthems with maybe repetition and interludes and, and things like that, you'd never you'd never finish. So you have these settings where you have it's only about ten bars of music, written out in minims, but of course they're not really minims. And you have this slightly esoteric system of textual notation that tells you when to change note, and you all change note together. And that's gets through the words fairly quickly, and it's also very quick to learn because you will use the same music for verse after verse after verse. It's not unheard of to change in the middle of a psalm. So if you've got one where where there's a change of mood, of mood, where the psalm starts with you know, woe is me for for woe is me, and then in the middle you get a sort of lightening of the spirit, and it's but it's okay because God is going to look out for me. At that point, you might change from a minor to a major key in in your psalm chant, but mostly it's one or a few chance for the whole psalm which is very efficient for learning the music as well because once you know what the chords are and how to read the sort of textual notation that's it you're done but i wouldn't want to give the impression that there's anything sort of token about these settings because they're a little bit like piano miniatures or even hymn tunes i guess because they are so condensed there is nowhere to hide every chord every progression has to count it has to mean something and i think this is why there are some of them that have become popular you know i think like hymn tunes in a slightly different way the tune itself is popular because people like where it goes and what it does and this howells one is a particularly good example of that it's got a real f sort of sense of i don't know i suppose profundity about it it's not just reciting the words and the music really is elevating them in a sort of unique way well, it's only a short piece, so we have time for a substantial excerpt from Howells' psalm chant in C-sharp minor, performed by the Trinity College Choir Cambridge, conducted by Stephen Layton.
Herbert Howells' music was greatly influenced by the tragic death of his young son, Michael. How did this affect his composition? Well, I think very profoundly, there are numerous pieces in which he is sort of coming to terms with Michael's death. I think Howells wasn't religious per se himself. He's one of these people like Brahms, where he's sort of vaguely spiritual, but drawing heavily on religion. And there's a a lot of his religious works seem to be trying to process what had happened through the medium of those religious texts, which I think he found a source of great comfort. But there's a lot of angst in his masses, his requiem, things like that. There is also, at the other end of the scale, there is the hymn tune, Michael, which is one of the most popular, and it's just really, really beautiful, which I'm not sure if it was written in memory of Michael or written for him while he was still alive, but it, it's almost the nicest of all the, the tributes to his son. is just his little hymn tune, which, you know, is, is sung thousands of times more per year than the larger scale works. But yeah, it was it was really quite formative on him as a composer. Uh, I know we talk about generally it's positive things that are formative, but so much of his music is coloured by coming to terms with, with Michael's death. And it took him a very, very long time to sort of work through that. And I think the music was a big part of that. Much like Mark Twain, the rumours of the death of the English choral tradition seem much exaggerated. In fact, it seems to go from strength to strength, both at home and abroad, with carols from kings and a festival of nine lessons and carols, now an essential part of Brand Britain. The music of John Rutter has now formed an essential part of a tradition that is managing to renew itself, while at the same time remain connected to its extraordinary history. Can you briefly introduce the music of John Rutter and a particular highlight? John Rutter is one of the most successful living composers, very, very widely performed, not just in Britain, but he's he's very popular in the US as well. The relationship that church singers have with him is an interesting one. There's, there's, a, there's a fondness, but there's also often a slight sort of scorn that this is a little bit beneath us sometimes. <laughs> you know, if, if you're comparing the reaction somebody has if you say, oh, next week we're singing an anthem by Rutter, to if you say next week we're singing one of the great masses by Palestrina, which I think is a little bit unfair. Certainly some of his music I still to this day associate with singing in the choir when I was about to move from primary to secondary school. This is um, age sort of 10, 11. But, you know, I think it's written for that kind of use and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. So the um, the, the piece I've picked is, uh, I was a little bit naughty in, in why I chose this. I found a couple of years ago, somebody had compiled a spreadsheet of popularly performed pieces by Rutter down you know down one axis and then across the other axis um various things he frequently does in his music um which if you were being nasty you would call cliches but I don't think they're really cliches I'd call them Rutterisms and so there's all these various Rutterisms and you know tick cross tick cross for which one has got which and this piece ticked I think all of them so it is scientifically proven to be the most (laughs) Ruttery Rutter that ever Ruttered it is peak Rutter it is peak Rutter yes um but in addition to being Pete Rutter, I genuinely think it's one of his best pieces. There's something about it that is just just incredible. It's What Sweeter Music, which is one of his carols. And the I don't know what it is about it. There's something about the key, I think. It's in a sort of very rich, dark G-flat major. But just the first few chords, you really do feel yourself kind of sitting back, settling back into the music, and it's sort of enveloping you. And for all that people might say about Rutter, that is something you can't teach, I think. Fantastic. Well, let's hear a bit of it then. So this is What Sweeter Music by John Rutter, performed by the Choir of King's College, Cambridge, and conducted by Stephen Cleobury.
Young composers like Anna Lapwood and groups like the Jesualdo Six are powering English choral music into the 21st century, with an increasing number of women now getting involved. Why was choral singing a predominantly male affair, and how is this changing? How we how it got that way is quite complicated, and I'm not 100% sure, but what I understand to have happened is in the dissolution of the monasteries, if you'll cast your mind back, as it were, obviously all the institutions that had been providing religious musical secular education to promising lads and lasses from the local area all you know shut down had all their stuff nicked by the state but somehow a lot of the ones that were male institutions managed to reopen themselves as sort of cathedral foundations and things like that and therefore kept going and for reasons i don't really know most of the female ones you know the convents didn't um whatever the reason is for that what it meant was that for centuries this kind of church music making was a man's game. You would have boy trebles, male altos, and, you know, obviously, the lower down the voices get, they tend to be male anyway. There are exceptions. There was this tradition they had, let's see, I think it's mentioned in Far From the Madding Crowd, actually. It's sort of that kind of era of, the. it's called the West Gallery tradition, because in a church you have east, regardless of where the church actually points, is where the altar is, and the back is West, liturgical West, if not geographical West. And there's often a gallery up there where uh, during this period you'd have a band of a fairly motley selection of instruments, just whatever people in the area had and could play, plus, you know, mixed up with the choir. So you'd have the hymns being performed by this vocal slash instrumental uh, mishmash ensemble. And that was much more egalitarian, like no qualms whatsoever about women and girls being in that sort of ensemble. And actually that's been revived a bit recently. There's been a few recordings of this kind of music and hymns from that kind of period by Maddie Pryor, of all people, who I think is better known to most people as the lead vocalist of Steel Eye Span and a band called the Carnival Band. They're, they're fascinating. They're just such a different take on hymns. And they're, yeah, it really gives a window onto that style of music making. Um... But in terms of the cathedral end of things, yes, this was a man's game up until very, very recently. I think I'm right in saying that among English cathedrals, the first choir that started letting in girl trebles was Salisbury in 1991, which is, when you think about it, astonishingly recent. And, you know, since then, it's become much, much more widespread very, very quickly. And, you know, Hardly a month goes by now without another cathedral announcing that it's appointed its first female alto lay clerk. And girl treble choirs are much more common now. And what they tend to do is to complement the boys rather than mixing all the kids together into one choir, which if you just think of the ages and the way both the voices and the children themselves develop would be total insanity. So you'll have a girls choir that will go from seven-ish all the way up to 18 and, you know, then you have girls who are about to go off maybe even to music college and the level of musicality they have is something you can't reasonably expect from a boys choir because the voice changes and you're lucky to have a boy trouble beyond 15. So it's just practical to keep them separate. You know, there have always been, I think, since this started happening, there have been people who've been worried about the long term future of boys choirs. But I think I think the evidence of the last couple of decades should be quite reassuring that they're actually not really in any danger. There's an interesting question about the sound. A lot of people care very deeply about the sound of a boys' choir. And in the main, I think those differences have been exaggerated, but there was something very interesting happened the other week at Birmingham Cathedral. There is a piece of music that we've often done with the boys' choir, and it's a very sort of hearty piece and has the sort of feel of, uh, I suppose, Year 7 rugby on a Friday afternoon. And it just so happened that we used the girls' choir for it the other week. And musically, the performance was better, you know, more in tune, consonants, all those kind of things. But it didn't have the same feel at all of just however many, uh, a dozen or so boys just completely going for it. The boisterousness. Yes, boisterous. Uh, boisterous with a Y. Uh, if, if, you know, if anybody's listening and, and knows of the piece Dyson and C minor, the Magnificat of Dyson and C minor, you'll know exactly what I mean. But that, I think, is the exception. In the main, I feel like the music really doesn't care who is singing it. But yeah, so now it is it is very much the norm to have a choir of girl troubles and a choir of boy troubles. Troubles? Boy troubles? Boy trebles. At, I think, probably the majority now of cathedrals. 
and recruitment has, has just never become a problem I don't think so there's no sense of these fizzling out I think people worry that the boys might fizzle out if girls came along surely, surely there'd be more boys if the girls were involved as well well that that <laughs> might be true if you mix the choirs up but then you know um, that really does set the cat among the pigeons <laughs> Um, I, I, I should just clarify, like the recruitment among cathedrals and choirs of that kind has never been a problem. At the level of parish churches, it is a little bit less of a positive picture. It, I remember joining a front row of ten when I was, whatever I was, seven, eight. And when I left, there were, I think, only two or three trebles left. And at that point, you have to either sort of transition to using adult female singers, which is a very different voice, or... Or give up, and people generally don't want to give up, and indeed the choir I used to sing in has the, the sort of demographic of a choral society, um, although it's obviously nothing like the size. So the people who might come through from parish churches to cathedrals aren't there anymore, but I think the cathedrals just recruit straight from schools. We certainly do at Birmingham. A lot of cathedrals obviously have a, a school built in or built on, which they recruit from, but it's Yes, in, in terms of the cathedral tradition itself, I, I don't feel like there's any danger at all of any of it fizzling out for the foreseeable future. Well, certainly not if talented composers like Anna Lapp would have anything to say. Here is her Onata Lux, performed by the Pembroke College Girls Choir, the Chapel Choir of Pembroke College, Cambridge, and conducted by Anna Lapwood. Conclusion, whereas the orchestral music scene can sometimes feel like a bit of a museum, choral music in England seems to be a hive of energy and creativity and is constantly managing to find a new audience. How does it manage to do this? There's a lot of possible explanations for this and I'm not sure how they make up the picture together. You know, the the short answer and the perhaps slightly glib answer is that you have to move with the times, you have to evolve or die in, in music as in anything. It may be to do with the fact that church musicians are not quite as subject to raw market forces. This is something I became very aware of at the start of the pandemic, because obviously a lot of my colleagues, being uh, my musical colleagues, being mostly freelancers, their work just you know dried up like that. But for people who are employed by cathedrals, that wasn't the case. And it struck me that we're actually the last surviving court musicians. If you think of you know the the, the wind bands and so on employed you know by the Esserhazes of Haydn's day and that kind of thing. It doesn't actually matter, at least not as directly, whether you have 50 people at Evensong or one man and his dog, because it's not about selling tickets and getting bums on seats. So I think that maybe allows a little bit more freedom than you'd have if you were programming, you know, an orchestral concert series and you've got to you've got to make sure that you hit certain beats, tick certain boxes that people will want to hear a certain number of symphonies and concertos that they know. If you want to try out a new anthem at Evensong, it matters a lot less if everybody hates it. (laughs) So it allows you quite a lot more freedom. This is also true, I think, of sort of the early music end, who are sort of exploring in the same way as contemporary music, because a lot of it is digging up stuff that's been not performed maybe for centuries. And a lot of these little ensembles, they're very specific in what they set out to do. And it's really a passion project for them. And that means that all you need is a few philanthropic backers who really believe in your project and you're set, then you can have what we have now. You know, we have ensembles specialising in lattice. We have the amazing Cupertinos from Portugal who specialise not just in Iberian Renaissance Panifoli, but in Portuguese Renaissance It's Panifoli, a niche within is, a niche. You know, it's, it's, it's nested niches. <laughs> Nicheception. Uh, but you can, you can do that. Whereas if you said to somebody, I am setting up a new orchestra that is going to perform, you know, exclusively new music or exclusively underperform music yeah or even from you know music from 19th century south america people would look at you like you've gone mad because the funding (laughs) would be a nightmare and it's sad that it comes down to sort of such brazenly capitalistic things 
uh, sort of influences. But I think that is part of it. And so you see things like um, the the late great Stephen Cleabury, who for every Carols and Kings commissioned a new carol, and that's that's a, a, a sort of a strike rate that is really enviable. And to be able to do that, and obviously then to bring it to a vast audience who you've lured in with the candles and <laughs> once in royal, and then you can smuggle past them some new piece that, you know, they may not like, but they may really love. And it's it's a really good way of getting new music to a much wider audience. And finally, would you agree that since the subject matter and instrumentation of sacred choral singing predates even the Eaton Choir book, which we discussed, all sacred music is essentially timeless. And so combining the old and new, like they do in uh, Festival of Nine Lesson Carols, is actually far easier than it would be for other forms of music making. Yes, I think sacred music has always had that sort of one eye on the past because of the fact that you are consciously keeping going and maintaining these traditions that have been going for you know hundreds or depending how you define it thousands of years in a way that other kinds of music you know the past is obviously always there and you can you can trace the genealogy of a certain composer their musical genealogy but it's never sort of quite so explicit whereas in church music and sort of church adjacent music like organ music it's often really really front and center so you remember we we, we were talking earlier about that that plain song thing of, of building a piece around plain song even after the cantus firmus stopped really being a thing that people used very much the thread of plain song goes through and through and through right up to the present day it's evident in the mozart requiem the soprano solo quite early on that is a quotation of a plain song melody you get it in de Rufflet, his his requiem indeed um, is extremely closely tied to plain song. It's not he's not just reharmonizing the plain song itself, um, but he is definitely making it explicit. Like this is my wellspring of inspiration, and he's putting it really on show. More recently, still, um, there's a composer called Claudio Dall'Albero who writes some of his music is very clearly sort of based on the Palestrina school of polyphony, you know, that sort of um, species counterpoint that you learn as a first year undergrad. Um, and again, it's it's not pastiche. He's not trying to be Palestrina, but he's using those same techniques in a new way. And the most surprising example, I think, perhaps to some listeners, is Carl Jenkins uh, in The Armed Man, which is uh, 1999, I think that was. The middle section of the Kyrie is written in, again, obeying all those rules that he would have learned when he was studying music of Palestrina-style counterpoint. Partly, I suppose, to prove that he can, um, because even then there was a sort of a sense among some people that he wasn't maybe a real or a serious composer, uh, but also just because it works musically. And right at the end of the very last movement of The Armed Man, indeed, the very final chord is an open fifth, and I remember when I first listened to The Armed Man, I thought, oh, where's the third then? You know, you'd expect it to be a, a sort of nice, reassuring G major chord, because ever since, I guess, the, the the Baroque, you've had a chord which has a third, whether it's a minor third or a major third, it, it, it resolves one way or the other. But the earlier style often doesn't, and it often resolves onto an open fifth, because that was considered the sort of aesthetically satisfying, complete way to conclude a piece of music then. And I don't think that's an accident when Jenkins does it. I think it is him consciously saying this is sort of, you know, this heritage is always still present in the music. Yeah, so it's 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 just everywhere in a way that it isn't so much in other music. And even more so if you look beyond just music and look at texts, because obviously the texts that sacred music sets are very, very old. Again, you know, as old as the Bible in some cases, however old you think that is. It's not that common for a completely new text to be set. I mean, it's certainly not unheard of, but it's often new settings of the old texts. And that, again, is something that is a sort of unique fusion of the old and the new, you know, working together rather than the new necessarily having to fight against the old, as I think it tends to in other uh, areas of music. 
Fantastic. Well, I think we've demonstrated there that the English choral tradition has an illustrious past, and I'm sure it has an illustrious future. Is there anyone in particular you'd like to thank, David? Yes, indeed, there is. Um, I meant to do this earlier on, but I forgot. Um, I'm incredibly grateful to Dr. Paul Robmel, who is a friend and colleague at Birmingham Cathedral, but also a lecturer at Birmingham University, where he teaches a course that is on basically what we've been talking about. I think it's called the Anglican Choral Tradition, something like that. And I had a, a little chat to him when I was preparing this, and he was extremely forthcoming, extremely helpful. So that was that was just marvellous to be able to bounce the ideas off uh, somebody who really is an expert in his field. So thank you, Paul, and thank you, Paul. And thanks to Matt Groom for producing, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>